Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Today's episode is part of a semi-regular feature on the podcast in which I check in with an in-house reporter at the United Nations to learn the latest buzz from Turtle Bay. So I am happy to have back on the show Margaret Bashir, the UN correspondent for Voice of America News. We spoke in mid-December, and we kick off with a brief discussion about a sudden decision by the United States to back off its support for a Security Council meeting about human rights in North Korea. We then have a longer discussion about the still-new U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Kelly Kraft, who at the time was serving as the President of the Security Council. And another topic that we spend a good amount of time discussing is the impact to the United Nations of a cash flow shortage. The UN right now is seemingly barely able to make payroll because some countries have not paid their UN membership dues on time and in full. So we discuss how that's being felt around UN headquarters. We do head on other topics, including a preview of what may come for the United Nations in 2020. But in general, this episode is a good distillation of what I'm trying to do with this series in general, which is, from time to time, give listeners a sense of what's buzzing or otherwise driving the agenda at UN headquarters in New York. And I do want to emphasize that Margaret Bashir is speaking in her own capacity. The thoughts and opinions she expresses are her own. For you regular listeners, let me know what you think of this series. I've gotten some good feedback, which is why I'm continuing with it, and, and we'll seek to continue doing it in 2020. I appreciate these regular check-ins with in-house reporters at the United Nations, but let me know what you think. You can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to send me your thoughts. Uh, also, the bonus episode I am posting this week for premium subscribers to the podcast is my conversation with Inter international relations theorist and scholar Robert Jervis. He is perhaps most famous for theories around how perceptions and misperceptions shape international relations. He is one of the giants of international relations. Scholarship is on every graduate school syllabus, and I had a real pleasure sitting down with him a couple of years ago uh, just to talk about his life and career and how he came up with his ideas. And actually, one thing I remember from that interview is like literally moments before uh, I called him up for the interview, I read this article in the New York Times that was soliciting its readers uh, whether they would go back in time and kill baby Hitler. Would they do it? And so I thought I'd put that question to him uh, to kick off the interview. It was an interesting answer he gave. So that episode is available for premium subscribers. To become a premium subscriber, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. You'll unlock those bonus episodes as well as other rewards like access to my daily global news clip service, and I'll mail you a sticker, among other great rewards. 
This episode is brought to you by the Masters in Peace and Justice program at the Joan B. Crock School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. This program is designed for individuals seeking knowledge, skills, and practical experience to address a wide range of peace and social justice issues and includes hands-on field-based opportunities in Rwanda, Colombia, and Mexico. The program prepares students for careers in conflict resolution, human rights, social entrepreneurship, education, development, and advocacy. No GRE is required to apply, and part-time options are available. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace to learn more. And this episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Margaret Bashir, UN reporter for The Voice of America. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, let me just say, well, let me just kick off. What, what, happened, what happened to this meeting that was supposed to happen on human rights in North Korea today? Yeah, so that got uh, kind of revised, and uh, the Americans decided not to do a meeting pegged to human rights, but to do something more around, uh, quote, recent developments, so more about uh, ballistic missile launches and, and the like. And uh, they are the president of the council this month, so that's that's their yeah. prerogative, I guess. Well, this was like a surprising decision. I mean, it seemed that, you know, I and, and other UN watchers were sort of expecting the U.S. to hold this meeting on human rights in North Korea on Human Rights Day, International Human Rights Day, uh, day on Tuesday, the 10th of December. Um, but it was sort of an abrupt cancellation, it seems. I think the story is, as far as I can tell, that there were not nine affirmative votes to go ahead with this meeting because the U.S. suddenly withdrew its support for this meeting. Correct. And uh, I mean, last week, diplomats were certainly expecting it to go ahead on Tuesday. Let's put it that way. And, you know, this is a meeting that in years past, the United States has pushed for, but other countries like China have sought to... Um, to to prevent that nine affirmative votes from letting the meeting go ahead. I remember last year around this time, there was supposed to be this meeting on human rights in North Korea, but it was also uh, unable to go forward. But that was because of Chinese pressure. Well, no, I, I think that was really because they'd had the summit between Kim and Trump 
and and that you know in the wake of the summit the americans didn't really want to upset the apple cart and things you know they they felt there was progress on the nuclear portfolio so they felt it was better to uh skip it i mean i don't mm. think it was really chinese okay. pressure last year and uh and i think a similar calculus seems to be in effect this year where you know they want to see progress on this uh nuclear file yeah, and so so they've sort of bracketed aside the human rights file. I saw in, in an email release from Kelly Kraft, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. today, marking Human Rights Day. Uh, you know, she cited you know, human rights abuses in Iran and Syria and Venezuela, but but decidedly not uh, North Korea, which was an interesting omission. Well, and that her statement really mirrored the one from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, um, has also only called out China, Iran, Syria, and Venezuela, and it skipped North Korea. But it also, hey, didn't call out Saudi Arabia or Egypt or, you know, some of the other big rights offenders who are, uh, you know, I, you know, when they want positive relations, I guess uh, they're trying to go a little easier on the, you know, the governments mm-hmm. that they feel are cooperating with them. Um, so I wanted to ask you uh, about uh, Kelly Kraft, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. She is currently serves as the president of the Security Council. This is a position that rotates monthly among the Security Council's 15th, 15 members. And so, you know, the month of December, she happens to hold the presidency. And, you know, typically countries that hold the presidency use it to advance a certain cause or thematic issue or, you know, just kind of highlight things that are of import to the uh, member state. What is your sense of what Kelly Craft is highlighting and, and doing for the month of her presidency? Uh, Well, it's a bit of a mixed bag because I would say December traditionally is a month where a lot of uh, resolutions and mandates need to be renewed. So I think there's a lot of uh, pro forma sort of stuff happening. It's also traditionally a shorter month because diplomats, staff, journalists (laughs) like to get out of town for the holidays. So the month is pretty much ending. The work program is pretty much ending on the 19th. So it's only really like two and a half weeks of work this month. So, uh, I mean, they have a, um, I think their main, uh, you know, thematic meeting is, uh, peace and security in Africa on intercommunal violence and terrorism in West Africa. And that's supposed to be on Monday, the 16th next Monday. So I guess that's their main, uh, event, but she just went to South Sudan, I believe it was last month. And, uh, that was her first trip to Africa. And so she's, trying to highlight that a bit. She mentioned it at her press conference uh, last week for the presidency. So, um, you know, we'll just have to wait and see, I guess. I mean, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Was she still planning on bringing the Security Council to Kentucky? She uh, is. And so, I mean, these are two of the highlight, two of the things really she highlighted during her press conference. One of them was the trip on uh, Thursday the 5th to Washington and they had lunch with the uh, president and that was not just the 15 members of the security council, but also the five incoming members who are joining in 2020. Um, so that was one event and and that's sort of been started in the Trump administration, that little annual visit of the security council to the white house. Nikki Haley started that. Mm-hmm. I, I remember then, I'm reading her right. memoir right now and she's, so oh, are of, you? <laughs> yeah, she tells you a little bit like of the behind the scenes of that, how, so how did they come up with that? I'm curious. Um, I don't remember. You know, I, I think it was her idea uh, as a way to um, 
show the Security Council diplomats, like the softer, disarming side of Donald Trump. And she said that in their meeting, everyone was kind of yucking it up with him. And he took time to pose with photos and everyone. Actually, they had a meeting. And then she said he sort of spontaneously said, why don't we all come to the Oval Office to do some uh, to do a photo op? Um, mm-hmm. And it was in her in her telling, it was his opportunity to show his like lighter and disarming side to them and not that sort of media profile of him as this, you know, um, you know, you know, loud mouth racist type. Well, I think it's actually probably it was a really smart uh, play on her part, because what did people know about him, especially in his first year? You know, he wasn't really a political force that people had dealt with before. And he was, you know, Twitter. <laughs> exactly. People know yeah. him by the Twitter, which you know can be a little. Um, so it's a good idea that they, yeah, that they took him there to meet him in person, and he can give a different image. And that's not something that you really saw the the Obama administration do. I mean, uh, President Obama came to the Security Council a couple of times to preside over meetings, but I don't recall like the kind of formal Security Council comes to Washington meeting. It could no, happen, definitely, I don't, I don't remember anything like that. Um, and so, okay. And, and then, then the, the trip to, to so Kentucky, they are going yeah. to Kentucky. Yeah. So back okay. to Kentucky. So they're going, uh, I believe, uh, around the 13th this weekend and, uh, they're going to go to a basketball game and they're going to have dinner with the governor and they're going to go to a bourbon. I think it's, I guess it's a distillery or, uh, it's some sort of bourbon, bourbon facility. How the <laughs> feel to, about that? <laughs> I, I don't know much about bourbon, well, so I'm just because yeah. she was saying something about they're going to pick their own barrels or so. I don't know. I don't know the hmm. lingo. Yeah. So it sounded to me like they're going to bottle their own bourbon, but she said something about bringing 300 bottles back. Huh. I, I can't imagine that goes over <laughs> well with uh, the aren't the Kuwaitis on the council still? Yeah, and Indonesia. Yeah. So, we'll, so we'll, we'll I don't know. Yeah. They'll have to sit out the bourbon event, I suppose. Uh, but in general, how would you sort of say that she has in her first six months you have conducted herself or comported herself? I mean, she came in. She's only been job. here three months. Or she three months. That's six. right. Yeah, she that's right. She got three here in the middle of September, right the middle before of the September. General Assembly. She was confirmed on the 31st of July, if I recall. Okay. But we didn't see her in New York until okay. basically General Assembly because yeah. she, she arrived the week before. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, so I, I guess, you know, in those three months, I mean, she has like a much different profile than those of her previous, you know, previous occupants of, of that possible. We're, we're talking about memoirs. I mean, I've, I've just also recently read the Samantha Power and the Susan Rice memoir. You know, you can wow, go back further. Like I've been on a roll. Down, you're tripling down. Well, and even before <laughs> then, I was thinking that uh, Zalmay Khalilzad wrote a memoir, as did John Bolton. I just can't see, um, you know. Kelly Craft, perhaps like writing a memoir. It's just like she's not like a you know professional foreign policy person. She's kind of I, I coming into this I don't see her writing new... a memoir because when we were all trying to write our profiles about her when she was being confirmed and coming here, you Google her and there's really very mm-hmm. little about her out there. So I think she's extremely private. And I don't imagine, I mean, there isn't much about her previous uh, work. It, her State Department um, biography just says something very vague, like she was in marketing and I, I don't know if she ran a marketing company or a marketing business, but like, it's all very vague. So, um, I don't see her being the type to write a, a memoir really. Now, the one issue coming into that, she, she kind of brought the baggage, we should say that she brought into this job that she recognized as part of her confirmation hearing is the fact that, you know, she is, you know, fabulously wealthy be, uh, because of coal. 
Well, she's industry. married to a billionaire. She's, mar- she's married. Yeah, she's married to a billionaire. Only since 2016. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a recent marriage. And so she has, uh, I guess, recused herself from issues pertaining to climate change because of that, or she promised to. Has that well, manifested it itself specific- in any way? I think it was actually specifically only coal related to mm-hmm. climate change. I don't think it was all climate change. I okay. think it was coal. But at the same time, I don't know. I mean, we don't really see climate change as a Security Council issue. I think there was one meeting a while ago before she got here about conflict and climate. But um, I I don't really see it as an issue that's going to be, be on her plate as much it might as it might be to one of the deputy ambassadors or to one of the political counselors. I mean, they would be getting into the nitty gritty of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I don't see where she'd be. in. I mean, she's not going to cop 25. She's not going, you know what I mean? Yeah. So in a way, I don't know what percentage of her time would have been spent on it in the first place. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, not not that much. I mean, under I mean, perhaps under a different administration. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps under a different administration, climate would you know be more part of the portfolio. Right. Well, let's conflict, say Samantha yeah. Power was the ambassador. She might be lobbying uh, President Obama to do more about it, perhaps, yeah. or to engage with the UN more about it. In that sense, uh, mm-hmm. which you're not going to see in this administration because it's not an issue that the White House wants to do more about. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. they've made that clear. Um, so, in, I mean, I guess in general, I mean, what what are the key differences between her and uh, Ambassador Haley in terms of just how U.S.-UN is functioning? Well, I haven't seen a real change in how the team is functioning, the overall mission. I mean, everyone's doing, doing their job still. Um, I think in the personalities, the difference, ob- the obvious difference is, as you pointed out, Kelly Kraft is a mega donor and Nikki Haley was a politician. And sh- P- Nikki Haley had... Um, and has, obviously, other uh, aspirations, political aspirations. And she never hid that when she was here. And every ambassador would tell you Nikki Haley is going to run for president at some point. You know, it wasn't any kind of a secret. And uh, and she certainly had a lot of influence with the White House because think about the timing. Uh, you know, when she arrived here, Rex Tillerson was the secretary of state and there was a bit of a vacuum where she was able to step into it and uh, really help shape policy. But then when Mike Pompeo came, her and, and John Bolton, she, you know, was getting kind of pushed out a bit. I, I don't know if she talks about it in her book, but, you know, her influence, her star was beginning to dim a bit. So, I don't know that I expect Kelly Kraft to have a huge amount of influence because the president's inner circle is, has shrunk. And also because, I mean, Nikki Haley didn't even have the same influence at the end of her tenure as she did at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I think um, Kraft, she's a different entity. And I think, you know, she has a gentler approach. She's not talking about taking names and wearing high heels and she's not coming out on all four cylinders and such. But um but she's had positive reviews. I mean, diplomats have said very nice things about her, uh, you know, in conversation. And, uh, you know, I and I think you can't underestimate that she would have access to the Oval Office because she is a mega donor and 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 she's also a donor uh, to a lot of senators, uh, senators on the Foreign Relations Committee and such. So they know her name and I think they'll take her phone calls. So if she has something she wants to express to them. I think they will listen to her. Um, so I wanted to switch gears a, a little bit and ask you how this 
budget crunch is being felt inside the UN. We'll talk a little bit about the background in a second, but I just want to get your sense of like what the on the ground effects inside the UN building have been for the fact that there is a cash shortage uh, at the UN right now. Yeah, and I mean the 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 real the serious cash shortage effect has has been trying to meet payroll. I mean the UN has actually in November they were concerned they weren't going to be able to pay all their staff. So uh, now they seem to be okay this month. December seems to be all right. The Americans paid up uh, quite a bit recently. I don't know if I have the number in front of me somewhere. Um, I could tell you if I was prepared, but they still owe 491 million. That much I can tell you. And um, they paid, oh, I have it, $563 million. Mm -hmm. So that covered uh, all of 2018, what was arrears for 2018. And I don't know if it covered some of 2019, but they still owe Four hundred ninety-one million. So, but basically, and, and the, the UN, the UN is going it. like month to month, trying to make payroll. Like, are are they canceling meetings? Like, are are you know the photocopiers running out of paper? Like, <laughs> what what what? How is well, this being experienced? I have to say that I really do feel that it is quieter around here in the last maybe six weeks or so. I don't feel there are as many meetings as there normally are. Um, it just it really does feel quieter. And uh, there is a rule meetings are from 10 to one and three to six, and they're trying not to go over because they don't want to pay overtime to interpreters, to other uh, meeting services, personnel and things like that. So, and security guards and, and so on. So everything has been uh, trimmed down. I guess there are a few less events because people don't want to pay the overtime and, and stuff like that. I mean, I heard somewhere it could be apocryphal that like the escalator or elevator is, isn't working somewhere. Well, I, you obviously heard that from the journalists because my <laughs> my colleagues are so lazy that they're really just uh, horrified that they've had to take the stairs and the elevators for the last month or so. But we could all use more exercise, so I have no problem with it. But, but yes, it, they have because... shut off the escalators because it, it's – look, it saves, uh, according to the UN, $7,000 a year in electricity, uh-huh. which is a very small amount. Uh, but, you know, they're saying they're scrounging in the sofa cushion, so every little bit helps. Huh. But at the same time, some of, you know, they put out a list, uh, I guess, a m- month or two ago when this started. They put out a list of changes uh, that were going to affect, you know, austerity measures. And amongst them, including the escalator, copies would be available of the UN Journal every day. Well, really, do you need a hard copy of the UN yeah. Journal? You know, like some of the things were sort of ridiculous. And frankly, some of them they should probably just do away with and save the money. But, uh, you know, in a place like this, there's always plenty of fat to trim. Mm-hmm. So they've been doing some fat trimming. And uh, but but I think a lot of the choices of things that they cut were meant to to directly impact some of the delegates and in a way to annoy them so that they would go back to their capitals and get the bills paid. Like we want to be able to take. The I think it was a strategy, and also we want to have a meeting that can run fifteen minutes over without worrying about not having translators. Right, like we don't want to have our signature event uh, cut short today because it's now one p.m. and you know there's still speakers who are left, but we don't want to pay the overtime to have mm-hmm. the room longer and the interpreters longer and and things like that. So. Um, so sure, I think, so, and mm-hmm. they come into the building, and then they have to walk up the stairs to get to the security council, and they're reminded that 
there's a budget shortage. And so maybe they need to call their capital. You know, that sort of a thing. So there is this budget shortage, we should say, because countries have not paid their membership dues to the UN on time and in full. And, you know, just uh, right. And to be clear, yeah. it's not just the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, the United States is the largest donor. And that's why, you know, the 491 million is so desperately needed. But there, at the beginning of this, there were about 63 countries that mm-hmm. owed money. And Brazil there were is big, a big one, right, too, right? Isn't Brazil? Big chunks. Yeah. yeah, there were some big chunks of money that were due. Maybe you have the numbers in front of you. I don't have them right in front of you. I know the, the biggest chunk was from the UN with that 491 million. Um, from the US. Brazi- yeah, from yeah. the US, pardon me. Yeah. Brazil was the next biggest one, but I've also seen some talk. Like Mexico that, was yeah, on. They had a pretty big chunk, I think. That that Brazil might be uh so deep in arrears that they may lose their vote. Has that come <laughs> up at all? Um, I haven't heard it about Brazil. At the moment, I'm not sure when when that happens exactly. If it's, I have to remember. Um, but there there are some countries that will lose their vote in the GA if they don't pay up. And I, but I think it's a couple of years, or mm-hmm. you have like two or three years, because I think like Somalia was on the list. And uh, but there's some countries who've already lost their vote. So I'm pretty sure. So, so just to sort of step back a little bit, we should say that uh, the way the UN funds itself is through membership dues from, you know, it's UN member states. And these dues are called the scales of assessment that are negotiated by countries themselves every couple of years. And they basically, it's what countries agree to pay in membership dues to the UN. Um, and the U.S. is always, uh, because it's the, the wealthiest country in the world, the one who you know pays the most. And it's, uh, you know, it's assessed at something, what, like 25% of the regular U.N. budget, 28.5% of the U.N. peacekeeping budget. Um, but because of both the way the U.N. budget, the U.S. budget cycle works and because of the way the U.S. has appropriated funds for the U.N., particularly in the Trump administration, um, the U.S. has accumulated some significant arrears, particularly in peacekeeping. Um, I think it's something, you know, the, the U.N. Uh, charges the U.S. something like 28.5% of peacekeeping costs, but the U.S. only pays 25% because Congress has this kind of arbitrary 25% cap that they've imposed. Um, And so that difference, that like 2.5%, 3.5% difference, has resulted in the significant accumulation of arrears, particularly on peacekeeping. But is that still a problem with peacekeeping? Because uh, a year and a half ago or so, Nikki Haley uh, worked with the fifth committee and they they trimmed the peacekeeping budget by a half a billion dollars i think and i think that was in part to because the u.s was going to meet its uh what is it the um helms biden right isn't that the act that's the uh, peacekeeping cap Mm. um that they were going to be operating within that 25% as opposed to going over it. So, so I think they've already trimmed it. Plus I did ask today about uh, whether they've received any more money from the U S and they said they had received some for peacekeeping. So mm-hmm. the U S has put up some more for peacekeeping because that's separate from its. Uh, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's separate from the regular, yeah. regular budget. Um, I think the answer is yes, but they're still um, assessed more than that 25% cap. Uh, and that there is, uh, st- they're still accumulating arrears. I think by the next year there'll be a billion dollars in arrears to UN peacekeeping, which you know is 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 very harmful. And the entire peacekeeping budget is, you know, what is it like twelve billion something like that? 
It's huge. Well, yeah. we heard um, uh, Leila Zarugi, the head of the mission in, East, in Congo. In She's DRC. been on this podcast before, in fact. Oh, she, has she? Okay, well, well, when she was the, um, the child in armed conflict uh, special representative. Well, so she's been the uh, SRSG in Congo now for over a year, mm-hmm. and uh, they've been having a lot of problems in eastern Congo recently with the uh, ADF, the Allied Democratic Forces, the armed group, attacking uh, civilians, and also they've been having problems protecting Ebola uh, healthcare workers. And she said one of her problems is that because of budget cuts, she's lost two battalions. And so there's been this, this surge, upsurge in violence, and she doesn't have the manpower to... Uh, meet it. Mm-hmm. And, and because so that's saying, one of the real on yeah. the ground uh, consequences of budget cuts. Well, and, and because when Nikki Haley negotiated that budget cut for UN peacekeeping, it largely came out of the DRC. Mm-hmm. Well, that is the biggest mission. Yeah, which is the biggest mission. And so now you're seeing the you know downstream consequences of that, um, you know, at a time also when they're trying to deal with Ebola. Well, and the problem is, you know, you have unforeseen events such as Ebola. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody was anticipating DRC's largest outbreak of Ebola ever. And so that adds to the problem. And the other problem at the UN is there isn't the flexibility, right? So you would think if, if something like that happened, they could move troops from another mission or temporarily beef back up the mission with an extra battalion or two or Mm -hmm. something, but it doesn't, you know, it's, it's just not that limber. Um, so we're speaking at the end of the year. Uh, so mm-hmm. I thought maybe I'd ask you sort of one sort of 2019 kind of year in review question, um, <laughs> which it, well, well, it goes to, you know, I think a broader global trend that I've seen. And, and I, I see people write about it a lot, which is China's growing influence at the United Nations and how that is being manifest. So what have you seen differently or interesting coming from China this year that sort of raised your your eyebrows? Well, I say the first thing is their new ambassador, uh, Zhang Jun, who's really uh, very talkative. He's uh, He speaks excellent English. He's very um, engaged. He talks to the press. And, uh, you know, his first week here, he was making news about the, about the trade uh, talks that were going on between the U.S. and China. So that's unusual because I've been here a long time and I can tell you that the Chinese ambassadors are not usually so talkative. And so I would think that has to be a conscious decision by Beijing to allow him to be more talkative. I don't think he's going to do that on his own. Um, I think the other thing is uh, the Chinese are very all about their Belt and Road Initiative, and it's come up everywhere and everything here at the UN. Uh, in September, there was they were supposed to renew the mandate on the Afghanistan mission, Yanama, and uh, the Chinese were threatening to veto the renewal because they wanted the words Belt and Road in the resolution. Hmm. And uh, in the end, they didn't get them, but you know there was compromise language and, and it went through. But it's just, it shows you how obsessed they are with Belt and Road, this initiative of theirs to build bridges across continents. And um, that's and so interesting. Other- well, I just think that, that that point is very interesting to me because, you know, historically, as you said, China has been sort of reserved and has been um, a proponent of very limited Security Council 
action and activity when it comes to, you know, dictating or discussing the internal affairs of other countries in ways that might be perceived to violate some um, understanding of, of sovereignty. But the idea now that their Belt and Road Initiative, this outward facing international development and infrastructure building project is such a key domestic um, policy priority that you're seeing it influence discussions at the UN is just sort of interesting to me. But I think they're trying to pass it off as multilateralism. Well, yeah, it's, it's like a yeah. different kind of multilateralism. It's a different vision of multilateralism. One that's it's theirs, you know, very yeah. transactional, that's theirs, that does not necessarily include things for environmental protection or human rights that other forms of multilateralism might. Well, and the other thing is, I think on the Uyghurs, you know, the Uyghur Muslims in China, this has been a big issue. Human rights uh, activists and advocates are talking about it. And the UN Secretary General has been pretty quiet on it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's strategic, you know, just as he's basically trying to stay off Trump's Twitter feed. He's also trying to stay off China's uh, Uyghur radar, so to speak. And, uh, you know, we ask him about it at every opportunity we get as reporters. And every time he tells us, I've said a lot about the Uyghurs. I've said a lot about the Uyghurs. And he says it to us in a very testy way. Hmm. And I don't, I beg to differ, you know, as Nikki Haley would say, with all due respect. <laughs> but um, I, I. The title of her memoir, by the way. Right. Yeah. With all due respect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, the, the Uyghur issue, I, I'm sure the, the Chinese aren't happy that it's being brought up everywhere. I mean, as we talked earlier, the U.S. put out their human rights statement today. It may not have mentioned North Korea, but it did mention the Uyghurs. Hmm. And so it's an it's an issue that uh, China does not like to hear brought up. Hmm. But but in a way, they're succeeding in in tapping it down because the secretary general has not been. You know, we've asked him repeatedly, should the Chinese close these so-called re-education uh, camps? And he won't say yes or no. And I think that's pretty bad. So so uh, in 2020, the UN will be commemorating its 75th anniversary. Yes, um, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big, which I know is a big deal around around the halls at the UN. Um, what I hope there'll be money for cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like cake. <laughs> Um, I don't know. What are, do you have any, any sort of top line, uh, stories that you'll be looking for in 2020, uh, coming out of, of the UN or at least in, in the coming months? Well, I think, um, the escalators will turn, be, be turned back on in January. Good. That's my first prediction. And I, I think a lot of things will unfortunately remain the same. I, I don't know that we're going to see any huge, uh, shift in Syria. I know you know, we thought we were going to see a breakthrough in Yemen, but it's sort of petered out a bit. So I, I mean, I hope that there'll be movement on Yemen, but we, you know, we'll just have to wait and see a bit. Uh, there is a lot of support for Martin Griffiths, the special envoy. So hopefully he'll be able to, uh, you know, we're seeing a little movement in Riyadh. So hopefully that will translate. And, um, uh, I think the global protest movements, uh, the secretary general has spoken about global protests. Uh, in fact, today in his human rights day speech, he, he brought it up because the theme was the youth standing up for human rights. And he was uh, pointing out that they've been at the forefront of these uh, global protest movements around the world. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to see more, more from the protesters. I don't think that's over yet. And um, so we'll, We'll see. We'll see where the where there's going to be a breakthrough this year. I think Sudan. I, I've been sort of fascinated with Sudan, to tell you the truth, with the transition there from, 
you know, a dictatorship of decades, peacefully ousted, and now a transition government coming in, and the the head of the transitional government, Prime Minister Hamduk, he's a former uh, UN person, and he's an economist and such. So I think there's high hopes for him. So let's see if he can deliver. It's it's a huge, huge uh task, but let's see if he can do it. And let's see if Sudan is stays on the right path. That would be very exciting. Uh, well, Margaret, thank you so much for your time. This is great. Thanks, Mark. Happy holidays. Happy, Happy New holidays. Year. Yes. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Margaret. That was great as always. And yeah, as I mentioned at the outset, let me know what you think of this series. Uh, I, as I mentioned earlier from the feedback I've received, uh, you guys have seemed to appreciate it. And so I'll keep on doing it every so often, check in with in-house reporters at the United Nations to learn the latest happenings there. All right. We'll see you later. Bye.